Hi, this is the Talking Stuff Network, and you're listening to episode 61 of Attention Plus with Arna Bray. Before we continue, let me tell you about What's Up Geeks, a podcast for the Desi Geek. Every episode covers recent tech news, analysis, reviews, and some amazing app and game recommendations. So search for What's Up Geeks on your podcast player. And now let me get our host on and find out what he's got in store for us today. Hey, Arnab. Hello. And so the today's feature story, when when you told me about it, it's interesting for me, to me for uh, two reasons. A, it has been in the news in rather shocking ways, I, I should say, recently. And uh, more important, there's a point we have made before. There's a topic that you are academically qualified to discuss. Yes. So uh, <laughs> let me start off by asking you this: with the recent news on, uh, you know, the possible, uh, I'm saying possible because there are versions of the news going around. Apparently, facts are not facts. So, with the recent news of possible cyber attack on one of our uh, nuclear facilities and the WhatsApp, uh, you know, backdoor snooping scandal and all, do you feel vindicated? Is it a "I told you so" moment? Exactly. So, this is for those of you who don't know and who haven't been following the podcast through its, I guess, about sixty episodes now. Um, yep. In 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 a very early episode of the podcast, I I talked about a personal anecdote of mine. So, for those of you who don't know, I. Um, what I do for a living is is I do a bit of cybersecurity for uh, medical devices. So it's I work primarily in the IoT space. Uh, that's that's what I do for a living. So that's the only thing that I feel that I'm kind of uh, qualified to talk on, which is why I talk about it the least. Uh, and I like to talk about things for which I have no formal education in. But uh, the, the 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 story that I that I said was a long time ago when I was contemplating going back to India. Um, it was about around 2016 um, because my daughter was still, she was just three years old at that point of time. And I felt that this is, I mean, if I'm going to go back, this is the time. Otherwise, I will not be able to go back because, you know, the cultural baggage that she will have uh, essentially will, will prevent me from going. So I, I tried to apply to some of the premier management institutes. And this is this is where the this is where the story comes is that. The question is, why would I want to teach cybersecurity in a management institute? And uh, everywhere I went, especially in, in one particular case, uh, the person just, you know, basically told me, you know, we don't need no goddamn cybersecurity here. Uh, if you want to teach cybersecurity, you know, want to teach encryption. That was the word he used. He didn't use the word cybersecurity. He used a, a small technical component of cybersecurity. It's like if you talk about car and somebody says, you want to know more about hubcaps, uh, go to so it was just that's very small part of it you should go and teach in the iits and you know the reason why and again this is where this is where why i wanted to teach uh cybersecurity in management institutes in the premium management institutes of india and it uh it was at least one point of time my kind of and it sounds a little grand to say it but kind of one of my life missions because i feel that this is something which uh i feel I could make a difference uh, to my country is that cybersecurity as it's not so much a technology as yes, cybersecurity, a security in such digital security encompasses a series of technological solutions. And while they exist and they're pretty good, I would say the reason why companies, and again, we, we, we saw this, the scare at Kundalkulam and we see this with not just you know Indian companies. I don't want to come across sounding as though this only happens in India. Sound it happens all across the world. 
I mean, it, it's happening to the U.S. government where the, where the Chinese basically decamp with, you know, terabytes of knowledge, terabytes of data about, uh, about people on whom, like people who they have given clearance to. And, you know, even I was part of that data breach because, you know, I got a letter saying that, you know, your, your data was compromised because I used to work on a project with the federal government that required me to have, uh, you know, to have my background cleared. So, uh, so it, it, it happens to the best of it happened to, it, it, it happened to pretty much, it's happened to pretty much everyone, including, you know, uh, an agency which looks after your credit rating. Um, that's really a bank. It happened to them. It's happened to Yahoo multiple times. And the reason why it happens is not because that the technology doesn't exist. It happens, and this is really why I wanted to teach at a management institute, is that there is a lack of cybersecurity culture in organizations. This is why you have uh, you have such a you, you have you have Aadhaar being so problematic because you know my hypothesis is that the people who made Aadhaar, uh, the 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 people of the age of Nara and Murthy, uh, they 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 did not grow up with a cybersecurity culture. Uh, I mean, they may be smart people. They definitely developed a lot of systems, but they did not develop uh, systems. They don't have that inherent thinking of developing uh, computer systems in an extremely hostile environment, because people who were developing systems in the eighties, you know, mainframes or COBOL or Fortran, they were not thinking of hostility as a design driver. Uh, they just didn't. And it's a very different way of thinking. As I like to say, if you, if for those of you who, who learned C the way I did, uh, the programming language C by re- reading Carnegie and Ritchie, the very first program you ever learn, learn has a buffer overflow attack. So uh, this just goes to show that, that it was that, that, that we kind of grow up, uh, at least people our age, I pe- hope that millennials are different. We kind of grew up learning coding and learning system design the wrong way. It wasn't, it wasn't the wrong way per se in that age, but it's definitely wrong way in this age because of, of the sheer amount of confidence that our modern society has in the working of digital systems. Now we let digital systems control you know, nuclear power plants. Um, with the rise of uh, big data and machine learning, you will have basically autonomous control of many of the things that we know that has a human being associated with it being given to machines, which means that is there's just a lot of, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of impetus for bad actors to attack it. It's not just, you know, getting, getting a password and getting in as, as, as the traditional model of security has been. It's always been that of a thief getting in, breaking in and, and you know, taking stuff. But it's something as subtle as just changing the data on which your algorithms are trained so that you end up having emergent behaviors in which you basically end up attacking yourself. So maybe I don't have the privileges to do the things that I want to, but you have autonomous systems that do. And all I need to do is poison the data that they learn of or that the data they monitor. And I can basically launch an quote unquote, an autoimmune attack on you exactly the way the, the you know, autoimmune diseases, the way they work is that your body basically learns something wrong. And it ends up attacking the cells, which are the body's own cells. Those kind of, that's like the, that's like the kind of cyber attacks that we will be going to within a few years. And so this, while this sounds scary and it sounds a little bit of science fiction, I mean, I can assure you they're not. Because that's really the way the next, and as the defensive technologies ramp up, 
the offensive technologies ramp up also. And again, the, 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 this discussion today, I don't want to specifically, we'll talk about some technology, but it's not focused per se on the technology because I find the technology to be of secondary interest to me, even though I primarily working, I mean, I'm a individual contributor, I primarily work in technology, but I'm more interested in the management of the technology. I'm more interested in how much money do you spend on cybersecurity? Do you even consider it to be something worth spending on? And how do you prioritize your investments? Because cybersecurity, and ultimately that is really what I wanted to teach at the management institutes, was that cybersecurity is in this day and age just another risk that you need to consider in your risk management system. So just like currency fluctuations, say, it is just yet another thing, except it doesn't right. work like everything else. Arnab, so I was in Chennai this past week for a family wedding and one of my uncles, he came up to me and he said, I mean, he runs a civil engineering firm, okay, I mean, with old school engineering and all. And he came to me and he said uh, that, that uh, his entire data, all his backup, including his, uh, you know, uh, like I said, his backup, everything is being held hostage by a ransomware. Yes. And trust me, he, he was almost in tears because uh, this is what, uh, more than 60-year-old gentleman who's, uh, first of all, he had to come to terms with using computers, then the whole internet thing. And now suddenly he says this, you know, he, he actually got a ransom note asking for Bitcoin. He was asking, what is this Bitcoin? He went to the police. Police didn't understand shit of what he was saying. Oh, my God. So he was in tears, literally, because all, all that design, everything is being apparently held hostage. Right. And so we can we can come to that. Um, we can come to that definitely. So one of the one of the things one of the one of the biggest challenges of today is cybersecurity education, um, especially for people who did not grow up in in a digital world. I think my daughter's generation and perhaps even my daughter is six years old, but even people who are in their twenties, they kind of grew up in in a digital age. So I think they they kind of <coughs> cybersecurity to them is like crossing the road in India. You know, they 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 have an inherent sixth sense. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and but but again, you you take somebody who's grown up here and you put him on Indian street, he'll not be able to cross because it's just it's just something which is built into us, and 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 I think cybersecurity is just one of them, and just like cybersecurity has to kind of be a learned, it becomes le- it becomes a learned experience, and then you kind of uh, it kind of becomes part of your uh, you know autonomous nervous system in the sense you don't really do think of you don't really think when you're doing it but you basically behave in a secure way organizations also need to internalize cybersecurity practices so they just do things the right way and this is really what i wanted to teach this is where, where i believe there's a huge it's a huge problem in the us so the the, the way it started was that some of the universities uh, some of the universities here uh, they were starting off these kind of programs and i felt that maybe we should start something just as the US is doing it. Maybe we should preempt them and start one in India so that we just don't follow, but we lead. And given the fact that India wants to position itself as a digital superpower, this is, this is the perfect thing for India to do. But unfortunately, I ran into, let's say, a lack of understanding. And it's not unnatural, but given the, given the, 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 the age profile of the people who control Indian academia, it's just, it was just impossible for me to make them understand uh, why it is it, cybersecurity is not about cryptography, just like driving a vehicle is not about the hubcaps or the tires. 
yes, you need it. But uh, it, the, the, the problem or the experience is, is it just kind of encompasses that. So the, the, what we saw with both Kundal Kulam as well as the Indian government's reaction to WhatsApp, you know, kind of confirmed the fact that not only do critical infrastructure, like a nuclear power plant, they can't be anything more critical than that. Not only aren't there, you know, it, 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 the experience is, it just comes up across as you know, people, they don't know what they're doing based on the kind of communications that they had. There was no, you know, that is, that is fundamentally part of cybersecurity risk management. A lot of it is, um, a lot of it is a fear of frustration, doubt. Some, much of it is not even technological. It is PR. So one of the biggest problems that companies grapple with is that let's say you have a cybersecurity vulnerability and somebody finds it out. Well, somebody finds it out, somebody can make a lot of exaggerated claims. Once you have a little bit of a problem, you know, the attackers, they're out to, you know, they're out to make a name for themselves or they're trying to monetize this in some way or form. So if you have a little bit, they will, you know, really, really, you know, make it sound as if it's much more dangerous than it actually is. And that I've seen that multiple times happening. And because the popular media does not understand cybersecurity, they, they pick up on the most alarmist, often not totally true things, and then they run with it. And the company which suffers the breach then has to spend an emo- enormous amount of time to convince people, look, dude, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's just not the way it works. So what I tell, and not just me and a lot of other people say, is that the moment you know you, you get a vulnerability and something happens in the public, you basically lost the story. So in that case, you need to invest. And so a lot of these companies, especially companies, I think over the last 10 years, people, at least companies in the US have kind of figured this out, at least maybe not purely... Maybe not they haven't figured it 100%, but they have understood how the messaging around cybersecurity works because there's a lot of panic. There's a lot of fear around cybersecurity. You know, for instance, when medical devices get hacked, you know, the companies, it might be a very minor thing, but their, their phone lines don't stop ringing because you have parents of kids like very nervous. I mean, what is going to happen to my child? She's, you know, she's on this, you know, this is a diabetes device. That was the first thing that ever got hacked. It publicly, it was in Black Hat. And I, and I heard the story from the guy who hacked it and who did the demonstration that, you know, he said, you know, he, he himself was a diabetic. He showed that, you know, a, a pump could be hacked. And again, yes, it was technically, you know, achievement, but it was not as, it was not very, very dangerous. It's not that the world was going to fall down. But this is the way it was messaged. And he himself later said that, you know, as a diabetic himself, he was to his emails were inundated by these parents saying what is going to happen. And he said, every time his reply and said, don't worry, this is a really, really, you know, it's very unlikely to happen. Uh, the manufacturer is fixing it. And, you know, a lot of things have to fall in place. But, you know, he said, one of the things I learned was after this was that the importance of messaging it properly. And he himself took some responsibility for it that, you know, you have to be very careful because they're actual people. This is not just, you know, somebody stealing somebody's credit card. You know, when somebody's connected to a device or any kind of life supporting system, any kind of safety system or like a nuclear power plant, you know, you have to be very careful as to how you message it. Because the, the risk is that people just lose faith in the technology. And this is why also that the U.S. government is so concerned about cybersecurity and about hacking because they see in it not just you know, the, the doomsday scenario of somebody, you know, infiltrating the power plants and stuff. It's not just that. I mean, that's there. But it's also the misinformation. 
you know, it, it happens in India too, right? Because of the voting machines. There's so many people who believe that voting machines can be hacked remotely, even though that is physically not possible. But some political parties have just, just, just spread that using using either the gullibility of some of our media organizations or their malignance either way because for people the moment they see hacking they think you know akshay kumar hacking and and and, and that that thing that you know the, 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 the there's no technical control over hacking that hacking is just something which happens because of that fear that people now have so either you have these two extremes either you have people who saying we don't need no cyber security or there's other people who the moment they hear the word cyber security they think everything is being hacked and the truth is obviously somewhere in the middle again as we like to say in this podcast the truth is always in the middle so we've we've seen that we've seen that in our public discourse that every time every time you know a certain political party loses it's because the electronic voting machines are hacked except that they aren't there's no way they can be hacked because they're not and again what they call hacking what they call hacking if you really look is they're talking about something which is extremely improbable they're talking about somebody basically replacing the thing inside the box that technically isn't hacking hacking is you don't really tamper with anything and you remotely or very close proximity you change the behavior dynamically that's pretty much what's known as hacking okay so the point that i'm trying to say is that there is there's a massive need for education both for end users that is for your uncle and people like him and for companies for the government for the guys who run aadhar for instance as i have said in a previous podcast i personally don't find the idea of aadhar the principle of aadhar to be problematic at all but yes i find the implementation the cyber security implementation the workflow implementation to be absolutely shambolic so that is a valid criticism for aadhar and again as the government pushes more and more for digitization what is their stance on cyber security what kind of laws do we have on cyber security what kind of protections in this country do we have on data privacy are companies being held accountable for breaches i don't think they are so um now i wanted to move along a little bit to the actual things that that kind of happened i don't want to go into a lot of detail on it but for kundan kolam for instance you have to understand that there that uh, any any nuclear power plant or any control system they usually have two networks one is the network that controls the power plant or controls the industrial industrial control system the ics and then there is a it network and while they might have touch points there might be some interaction with them this is where the most crucial part of it happens is that you need to make sure that at multiple levels and uh, not just at the network level but there are multiple levels and again i don't want to get too technical but for those of you who ever studied computer science or electrical engineering which had a network course you remember the osi protocol model right so that that osi there are multiple levels at which you know you have a network level you have a transport level you have a session level you have a presentation level you have an application level so security needs to be implemented at each of these levels this is what's known technically as defense in depth so again i'm getting into the technology of it but all of this has a cost all of this has an organizational structure all of this has a risk and that's really what i wanted to teach that part of it. not so much how you do it again i think how you do it is much better understood then so the technology the engineers understand how to do it it's just the managers don't think it's worth the money 
or what usually happens is that it 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 flows you know some manager comes in gets too panicky gets scared by the word hacking and goes to the extreme and spends too much money and then the next guy comes in and says well what have we achieved and we spent so much money and still we got hacked so now let's not spend anything on it so to kind of kind of calibrate that that that's the that's the crying need right now i think the i i i think the and, and so from and again details are very sparse on what happened in kundalgulam but it seems that the that whatever happened was actually in the it system i think nobody is claiming that the control system network was hacked but the it system uh, as far as i know that the authorities are saying that even the it system is essentially air gap which means that the it system it, you cannot connect to the it system from outside that the it system at least and i don't understand what i read the word air gap air gap basically means a computer which does not has physically has the wireless card taken out it's like my computer used to be in 1997 when i could only watch cindy crawford pictures on it because i took a floppy and put it in there was no other way of doing so and there was no modem nothing that is basically an air gap system now uh, normally air gap systems are used to are used to store what are nowadays known as hardware security modules so there are hsms which actually store the private keys which are basically used for signing code and i know i'm getting technical but it's usually what's kept in an air gapped installation but what i think what happens to the it systems is that even for a nuclear power plant the it systems are not accessible from outside usually should not be and what often happens is if you go and audit you'll find that it's not actually true that even though the policy says that the it system should not be accessible from the outside there will be some guy who says yeah 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 but you know sometimes we have to remotely administer it if something goes wrong so we basically vpn into it which means ah karte hain hum karte but we know what we are doing we don't let you know other guys do it which means that basically anybody can do it if they can escalate their privilege so you know what people say the system is is often not the way it operates and especially i can understand in in in, in indian government installations i can pretty much presume that that is what happens i think the i think the the pegasus which was the the, the whatsapp one was more fascinating for me because from what happens at kundankulam i don't think that this is the top of this is top of the line bleeding edge security which is going on there i'm pretty sure they have like old windows 95 systems uh, they are using smb1 which is a protocol which you know basically malware malware writers love for the iran nuclear attack they they used a, a particular malware right to basically so the, move so the stuxnet was so stuxnet, stuxnet was, so yes. yeah so st- with stuxnet the thing was that stuxnet was it was not delivered over the network it was delivered somebody delivered it over usb, USB inside yeah. the plant there was there was definitely a spy inside now once that thing is done it's it, it was a very specific a kind of i think siemens controller that it targeted so it was very 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 focused on you know so that's why that's why people figured out that it wasn't just some malware it was malware written for a very specific instance for a very specific person it's like basically stuxnet was like a, a you know a, a, an an election for the congress president it's selectively written for rahul gandhi and nobody else <laughs> it's that kind of a thing so uh, that was what stuxnet was but i don't think that we in kundankulam had anything similar to that i think what happened was you know generic level malware got on to uh, got on to the it systems and 
again, definitely it was used by a non-state, you know, a state actor in this case, I hear North Korea, but, but given the lacks, I mean, given the fact that I'm pretty sure that people can bring a USB drive from outside and stick it into, into the IT systems, this is something which is bound to happen. And, uh, then there's so much material to cover. I just can't, can't kind of kind of can't even focus right now, because there are. Um, for those of you who want to know, um, at one point of time when when in the 90s, writing malware used to be you know used to be that it was an individual effort. I mean, if you were very smart, you wrote malware. But nowadays, you know, writing malware itself is an industry. So you can buy packages uh, with actually pre-installed malware on it. I read a few years ago that there was this couple, this retired couple in UK who didn't, who couldn't barely use a computer who had scammed like hundreds and thousands of dollars just by buying this pre-packaged like Microsoft Word, like Microsoft Office is like Microsoft hacks. So you basically buy this tool, which basically packages everything and you just press a button and you create an exploit. You just point and the exploit hits that place. So, so there, there are software now, which is so user friendly that it allows anybody. So, you know, illegally, it's technically not illegal because they're not actually committing the crime. It's like, they're the gun, they're the gun vendors and they're just giving it to people to just go and pull the trigger. So there is, these things are available. Uh, I mean, you can, they're available free if you want. Um, And then if you, if you want the better stuff, uh, you can go to the dark web and get them. And I think the extreme of that is uh, what happened in India and happened to some other countries is, is the case of Pegasus. So Pegasus is a, basically a malware generator software. There's no other ways of it. It's called a surveillance software, but that's really the objective. Ultimately, its aim is to get fraudulently get onto your phone. And Pegasus is, is developed by an Israeli company who claimed that they sell Pegasus only to governments as if that makes it better. Now, in this case, I don't think that the, I, I, I totally don't believe that they sell it to governments because ultimately governments in general, they don't go and buy these kinds of things. They just don't go and say, hey, I'm the government. Uh, here's my government ID card. Can you sell me a can you sell me a year's license of Pegasus? It, that doesn't happen like that because no government wants to be associated with this. I'm pretty sure a lot of governments use this. But I don't think anybody. So, you know, Pegasus will possibly sell it to somebody else who will sell it to somebody else who will sell it to the government. There will at least be two levels removed. So I just don't think and I just don't think that Pegasus, you know, the, the people behind Pegasus, they, they, they know this. So That's like a broad Mission Impossible movie. Yeah. So I don't I don't I don't quite buy that. But whatever it is, uh, the thing is what Pegasus essentially uses is Pegasus uses what's known as zero day vulnerabilities. So zero day vulnerabilities are, you know, basically vulnerabilities that are present in a software on the day it is shipped. So nobody knows that it exists. Now the zero day vulnerabilities, when I say nobody knows it exists, I should clarify it says no publicly people don't know it exists. Many times the zero day vulnerability is actually seeded by an internal threat source inside the company. They just create a you know backdoor. The developer basically says, okay, ask for an user password. But if somebody says zero, 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 Shah Rukh Khan zero, then um, just allow the guy to come in or unauthenticated because that's me. And sometimes these zero day vulnerabilities are intentionally seeded. And sometimes they're just there because of developers, because developers don't want to go through authentication or go through the security hoops every time they're testing their code. So they usually leave some kind of backdoors and then they forget to take it out. So whatever it is, many commercial code that goes out has 
these zero-day exploits. And it's very, very difficult. I mean, it's not that they, they, they go out with a gazillion number of them. So zero-day exploits are, are very, very expensive. According to what I've read, it costs from a million to a million and a half to buy an actual zero-dollar exploit in the black market. So that should tell you the amount of effort it takes to develop one or find one. So uh, isn't the window also for the for the zero day very low? I mean, it's no, it's not. Time. So the th- thing about zero day is that nobody knows, right? <laughs> so a yeah. zero day exploit could okay. exist for years. And the thing about zero day exploits, and you, you, I mean, it, it's a crapshoot, right? You buy a zero day exploit and the next day Microsoft finds about it. So you lose your a million dollars. But the people who are buying this don't really care, actually. So the time part of it is there. But mo- that is the thing about zero day exploits. It's not that... <coughs> it's been found. Now, the second class of vulnerabilities is what you're talking about, is when a vulnerability is detected. And this happens a lot in the open source community and many of the web servers we use, like Apache, for instance. So whenever you have these hacking, like Pakistan hacks the, the website of so-and-so defense organization or in Indian hackers go and hack, they basically, what they do is not really you know, they basically find they find out what kind of web servers they're running, what can, and they're usually ones with vulnerabilities that have not been patched, and then go, they go and launch standard attacks, and they basically can write to the directory in which the website is. And it's not anything more than that usually. But you know, that's all you need to you know deface the website. So th- th- that's the that's the more common kind of hacking. The more common kind of hacking is there is. Okay, so that's not the more common, there's a more common kind of hacking is somebody in the open source development community, let's say they're developing some, let's say, a content management system like WordPress, for instance, that I used to write my blogs on. And so uh, people say, oh, there is a there is a buffer overflow attack, or there's something wrong in the code. And I think we need to patch the vulnerability. Now, the bad guys, they are actually there in all of these communities, just listening to what's going on. The moment they hear any of this, the smart guys, they figure out how to weaponize that. So that is when their clock starts ticking. Now, in case of many open source communities, what happens is that once they kind of bug, unlike Microsoft or, 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 or Apple, which primarily give you executables, they don't give you the source code. Um, in many places with open source, you just get the source code. That is, you just get the C programs or the Java programs. They say, okay, we have a problem in line number so-and-so. Go there, pack, change that line number and recompile it, rebuild it and deploy it. And then it's secure. If you want to wait for us to do it, you have to wait another release cycle. And that's when the problem starts because not a lot of people have that ability to do it themselves. So till the next release cycle comes, I as a hacker know that let's say 70% of the user base of this is open to attack. That is the second most form of attack. Okay. So it's quasi zero day. So it's not that it's unknown, but there's a window. The window will close. Now the third most common way of getting into it is people are just goddamn lazy. They are lazy. They just, they, and it's not just a question of lazy. They build software. They spend money on building software based on operating systems and that operating systems just becomes old and it becomes vulnerable and the original vendor just stops maintaining it. Case in point, Windows XP. So systems constructed around a certain vintage, they run on Windows XP. And Windows XP is something whose security is no longer supported by Microsoft. 
and it has a lot of security problems. So sometimes Microsoft has to even patch it, like it had to patch it when WannaCry happened, even though it was out of support because of the criticality. And so why, why, do, these, why do people still use Windows XP? Because of cost reasons, because there are many hospitals, there are many infrastructure places that just ATMs. don't, that just don't have the Excuse me? A lot of ATMs I see, they still have uh, Windows XP. Yeah, so they still have Windows XP. Windows XP exploits are well known and they've been known for decades now. And uh, there's no fix for it. So obviously, what do you expect will happen? Now you can say, well, why don't they replace things? Well, they can't replace things because software, application software is built on top of operating systems. And when operating systems fundamentally change, the new software has to change. So there is an economics behind updating because of cybersecurity. And again, coming back to the way I started, since there is no culture of cybersecurity, many of the decision makers just don't understand this. They just don't understand this. They just don't understand the criticality of not of updating the underlying platform. They just don't understand why they should do it or why it's, they just see some random engineer coming and say, you have to do it. Now, they don't react very well to somebody saying you have to do it unless they understand what the return on the investment is or what risk they're exposing themselves to. And that is really where, that is really where things need to be taught. And that is why we still have such a big problem with cybersecurity. We have a big problem in cybersecurity because of legacy systems, because the economics of updation, because people just don't feel it's worth the money to update. Another big example is the routers that you use at home. Many of the routers, I mean, think about it. When was the last time you patched your router? Your router is actually in a, in, in a place of great trust. And your routers themselves have vulnerabilities. So when routers, so sometimes you'll find Cisco rolling out firmware updates. And the problem with them is often they don't say why they're rolling out the firmware updates because sometimes the companies just don't, for good reasons, don't want to tell people that there is a friggin' huge security vulnerability in what you have right now. So I just apply the patch. Now applying a patch on your, in your, your, your iPhone app patch application is pretty painless. It comes, it says iOS 13.1, overnight it's applied, right? You're asleep, you don't even care. But with things like, for instance, your router, it's not as painless as that. You know, my parents have a wireless router. If that router has a vulnerability, there's no way in hell they will be able to patch that. No way in hell. That is going to stay there unless they buy a new router. So, and how many people are going to buy a new router just because there's a security vulnerability in it? And that security router itself will have a security vulnerability in, you know, in, 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 in three months. So there are some parts of our infrastructure that's just so difficult to even patch. It's that the computer and in your phone are actually the easy ones. There are so many things like cameras, like, you know, the kind of cameras that you have, uh, you know, the, the, where there's, there's firmware in your, in your microwave, there's firmware in your refrigerator. You know, none of them are kind of technical. You're right. None of them are networked, but with different kinds of home automation services coming in, you know, Nest and, and all these things, ultimately all of them are being networked. Your power lines, you know, your billing. And in India, it possibly it still doesn't happen. I don't know if it does, but over here in the U.S., Nobody comes to read your meters anymore. They're all, they're all digital meters and they're outside and they stream and they stream our data to our power service, uh, power services, central service. But imagine the data that's going there. It, it says when 
when our peak spikes happen. And you can absolutely correlate when we are in our house with that. So if somebody is observing that power profile, they can say, oh, that somebody opened the fridge because that power spike will be there. Somebody turned on the television or somebody turned the television off. So you can basically have that kind of spying going on uh, somewhere outside, inside your home. So the, the possibilities are endless. And you know how many times do you think your, your power company's power meter gets patched? So, so, so that is really the problem. The problem is patching. The problem is not, this is the biggest problem. It's not zero days. Zero days are extreme cases. When zero day happens, you throw your hands up. So what happens with Pegasus in this case is that they found a buffer overflow attack in WhatsApp. Now, <clears throat> tooting my own horn, I said it was a buffer overflow attack before WhatsApp acknowledged it was a buffer overflow attack because I felt it sounded like a buffer overflow attack. So what happened was that um, the, the attacker, uh, they, they sent a video call request. And even if you didn't pick it up, the video call basically allowed code to be run in WhatsApp. So this is the moment I heard it, I felt it was classic buffer overflow. This is exactly the way buffer overflow works. And now they've said that it was a buffer overflow attack. So by doing that, they were able to get what's known as a beachhead on the phone. Now, Pegasus also has in its reporter um, certain zero-day vulnerabilities. So using that, once they get that beachhead, then they use those zero days to basically break into your iOS or Android phone. And then they can see whatever is going on there. They can look at your passwords. Effectively, they can log in as you. They can't really look at the passwords technically, but they can look at your you know, people who you called. You can do everything that anybody who's, who wants to surveillance, who wants to put you under surveillance would want to see who you're calling, what you're saying, who's calling you, everything. So previously, before the WhatsApp hack, you know, Pegasus, you know, the makers of Pegasus have, um, have uh, targeted uh, Tibetan monks who are dissidents of the Chinese government. And that's what I read recently. And there, Pegasus still, you know, the guys behind Pegasus still hadn't found a way of weaponizing it. So they used to send them like phishing exploits where they basically ask them to click links. And once you click the link, then the malware gets uh, gets installed and then uh, those people were trained that you know just don't click links you know don't attach files you know share them on something like box so you don't actually attach files to emails so after that happened the the number of these kind of pegasus infestations went down because user user behavior changed and so now they have stepped up their game and then they did this whatsapp thing which now does not even need user intervention. So I get this question a lot. So what can people do? Okay. So these are the things which people can do. Again, some of it, you can't do anything. If somebody has a zero day vulnerability in iOS, dude, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do about it. And I'm in cybersecurity, nothing I can do about it. So the thing that you should always do is you should always, and this is the bare essential in leading a digital life. You should always keep your operating system and your applications patched. Since most of you are not running a company, there is no reason why you cannot patch your computer. The moment the day a patch comes and you know you get this icon which says, we need to turn your machine off to install the patch. And you're like, oh shit, I can't do that. And you keep on pushing that, pushing that till it's months. 
that you haven't installed that update. Do not do that. Do not do that. OS vendors will not often tell you why they're asking you to apply a operating system patch. And they, they do it for a very good reason. So when they ask you to apply a patch, apply your patch immediately because when an operating because you understand that the attackers are now looking, they know that a vulnerability exists. They know that a patch has been rolled out. They know there are many people who haven't applied the patch. So you are now a target. So do not, do not delay applying any patch ever. Rule number one. Now I understand it is difficult to do for routers and stuff, but do it. I do it for routers. I know a lot of people don't do it for routers. I know I do it for routers because I know the kind of exploits that can be done through routers. So once somebody breaks in through your router, you can understand that he has access to a very, very trusted unit in your network infrastructure. So whatever controls you have at, you know, he, he, he's, at, he's, at a, he's, he's at a really good place to be. I'm not saying that a person who gets onto your router can necessarily read your encrypted traffic. They cannot. But, they, but he's still in a position where you don't want him to be in. He can definitely see how your, you can definitely see your, the movement of your devices, for instance, in your house. And you can look at a lot of things which do not use. And this comes to the next thing, TLS, transport level security, or as you see that lock in your browser, which uses HTTPS, which is really the HTTP protocol being used over transport layer security. So never ever in this day and age, never ever give Type anything into a website which does not have that lock into it. I don't care That's, what. Is that different from SSL? So, you yeah, know, so SSL is, it used to be called SSL. That's, it's now called TLS. Oh, okay. Okay. So SSL is uh, secure sockets, secure sockets layer. And then the, the, the new is TLS 1.2 and now it's become TLS 1.3. So as a user, never not just don't put your password in to a site which does not have HTTPS. I mean, that you should definitely not do. Do not put any kind of input in a site which does not have HTTPS in it. Unless the government forcing you to do it. But don't do it. Because anything that does not have HTTPS in it is being monitored. Even if you think it is the most benign information, somebody you can guarantee, I can guarantee you is looking at it. So be very, very careful. So keep your operating systems patched. Keep, do not ever, try not to use, essentially, at least I nowadays do not go to any website which does not have HTTPS on it. I just do not. Any website which does not, which has HTTP in it, in a way is not taking your security seriously. So if you, for instance, go to greatbong.net, my blog, I don't solicit any input from you. I mean, I took, take your comments. That is HTTPS now. So I should tell you, you don't provide passwords, you don't provide anything, but it's HTTPS. Do not go to any website which does not provide you an HTTPS interface. Okay, that means that those guys don't take your security seriously, essentially. Third thing is, do not click on links. Contrary to what you might have seen in movies, it's not easy to hack anybody. Okay. It's, it's still a difficult thing to do. 
they first need to get a beachhead. In the case of Pegasus malware, WhatsApp provided them beachhead. Again, if WhatsApp, if something as trusted as WhatsApp has a buffer overflow attack in it, uh, there's really little you can do about it. But most hacks do not happen like that. Most hacks happen when you as a user are fooled into clicking on a link or opening an attachment. So never ever, never ever trust anybody you don't know Never open an attachment. If you get an email from your bank, okay, your American Express or MasterCard saying blah, 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 blah has happened. Do not click that link in that email. Go to MasterCard separately in a separate browser and log into your account. Same thing for Amazon. Do not use the convenience feature of a link or in an email. Even if you're perfectly sure it's from your legitimate bank even if you're perfectly sure don't click that link i get a link which says every time which says you know your credit card account pay your credit card account and i get an email never do i click that link i go to my bank credit card account separately in a separate browser log in pay my bill four or five more clicks definitely worth it trust me that is the most most egregious way in which your banking credentials get stolen there's no two ways about it. People normally, normally banks take care to not leave like vulnerabilities in their front page. So people can't do, they could do 10 years ago, but nowadays I think pretty much every bank takes it seriously because there are legal implications of that. I mean, you would be in deep shit if you did that and money got stolen. And the last thing is, please, please use a password manager. So do not use the same password for every site that you use. I know it's very, very tempting. There are so many passwords to remember. That's why you use a password manager. A password manager, there are free password managers available. You, you remember one password, which again, don't use. And this is goes for this is common sense. And I think people say it all the time, but don't use like birthdays and you know things that people can associate with you. Because remember, your account is most likely to be hacked by someone who knows you. It's not going to be hacked by, because you're not Donald Trump or, you know, somebody really very important normally. So you might be if you're listening to this, but normally there's nobody who's who in in general, they're not nation states, which are targeting you. But even if they are, they will target you after getting to know a lot of things about you. And mostly you're going to be hacked by your friends. Okay. Who know things like your birthday, your first car, you know, your mother's maiden name, all that stuff. You know, people know that about you. So do not, do not use your passwords. Do not use password reminder questions. Okay. If you, if, if your site is still stupid enough to give you password reminder questions, you know, give junk answers. Okay. Give junk answers because, you know, th- those are the ways in which I've heard celebrities. I think that's the way Paris Hilton got hacked because, you know, everybody knows everything about Paris Hilton. It's very easy to guess her. <laughs> secret questions because he said it so many times <laughs> so and especially if you're a paris hilton super fan so you know spe- so that's why use a password manager so a password manager what it does is a password manager generates large random passwords for you which you're not supposed to remember all you're supposed to remember is one password and yes if you lose that password then somebody has all your passwords yes you're right in case that's what you're thinking but it's still a much more secure thing to remember one password and then use 
absolutely random passwords for every site you go to because then what happens is when uh, and it is inevitably happens is that some website you visited and it's happened to me in yahoo it's i think happened to me in linkedin also that the passwords get the password gets stolen so when people steal passwords it's not that they know your password so passwords are usually stored in files after being salted and hashed i'm not going into the details but it's not like in raw text but what people can do is they can they can break them after some time they can get your they can get your the raw password out or they can try to basically use the hash in some other places if if the proper sorting is not done so the the thing is that if you use any website any password you use you have to understand that that password itself can be compromised so you make sure you don't use it in, in any other place so that's why you need to give unique passwords to every website that you visit and this is particularly true for your banking websites your email websites things that your your shared directory like your your dropbox website in a dropbox password anything which has stuff that you believe is of personal importance to you that you cannot live without you should use a unique random password for it there is no other excuse in this day and age yes any questions vikram i would like to add a fifth rule though uh, you mentioned four uh, just to recap stay updated with all the patches use ssl sites only uh don't click on links use a password manager to generate unique passwords and the fifth one i would uh, add to that is enable two factor authentic- authentication for uh, all the services that provided all the services provided not not a lot of services provided by the way yeah the, <laughs> thankfully at least your your gmail would and i guess facebook and twitter do and people uh, uh, here something in fact uh, i wanted to ask you about now many people say that you know are it it's just facebook yaar what's the best thing that can happen what's the worst thing that can happen if somebody breaks into my facebook quite a lot isn't it yes so you have to understand that in our day and age since we use facebook and all these accounts for ages we have a lot of stuff there that is not just related to facebook but it's related to things outside facebook so you will have shared so uh, there was this classic example of uh, of of this happened a few years ago where it somebody didn't even break into anybody's email account this guy just found out uh, all the places so he basically called amazon and uh, pretended to be this guy's wife and said could i have this now this thing about him like last four digits of his social security number i can't get in or something he is my ha- and they gave it to him use that to authenticate to some other place where he got another little bit of information use that to go to a third place and ultimately in about 10 or 11 tries with different vendors he was able to now get into his io his 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 apple account and once he got into his apple account this guy found out that his apple account was used as the second factor of authentication in his other accounts so now he had that second factor of authentication in in control so the way our you do not so if you think my facebook account lost who cares you have no idea how your facebook account is linked to everything else and that's true for any in this day and age you your your digital activity and you do so much of digital activity and your digital activity persists for years that that pretty much everything that you have uh, your email accounts even the ones you don't use use for even the email accounts you use for trolling people okay even those email accounts you know it 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 has something about you. if if I, if for instance if if i can break in if somebody can break into your troll anonymous email account there's a high chance that they can find out who you are 
there would be some crumbs left there maybe there was that one time when you forwarded something to your actual email address from there it's there so be very careful about any any email account you own okay because let's say you have an anonymous email account uh, maybe you signed up for something there you thought well i don't in any case don't use this account i'll sign up for this crap newsletter and then in that newsletter you perhaps put your first name or something there and then give a but i can get that first name and that may be all i need in order to find out who you are because i'm basically broken in i think i know who you are now i have the proof that you you are that person so again it's very very important that you protect all your accounts that's why i say please use a password manager i know this is not something which is common advice still but um please use a password manager that's really the only way you can stay safe in this day and age on password still till people figure out a way to get rid of passwords which people always say they are going to but it never happens i i personally use lastpass is there any tool that you would recommend for us i, I use lastpass too okay okay uh yeah th- couple of questions i mean before we before ask my first question i uh, uh, also would like to point out this website called uh, have i been pond where pond is spelled p w n e d so it's have i been p w n e d .com you can go there and just type in your email address and what it would do is it will tell you a list of places where your email id or your login uh, credentials have been publicly hacked so i consider myself that you know uh, i'm quite wary and i have enabled two factor i've been using unique passwords for years now there are 22 different places where uh, services which use my email address as a login which have been subject to a hack so just uh, go to have so, i been so contacted. so again there that that's a very important thing because you remember this is not your fault this is the people you give your password to right they are the guys who basically got it compromised and one thing that you have to also understand in this day and age is use of technology like oauth to an open id okay so when you basically federate your authentication to somebody else so there are a lot of websites which for instance use your facebook login so when you lose your facebook login and you have linked your facebook using oauth to to any of these websites you essentially lost that login to so somebody could log in to that website through your facebook credentials so be very careful when you use those convenience features like you know and i'm not going to get into the tech you know the you know open id versus oauth so oauth oauth blank 2 is basically an authorization framework and open id is an authentication framework which is built on top of it but this is basically what allows you in many websites to sign in with your twitter account to sign in with your facebook account to sign in with your google account so that website in which you sign in they don't get to know your password it's google but google basically does the job of authenticating you and then you give certain permissions to that website you say okay this guy can look at my facebook pictures so then you then google basically mediates that so google says okay this guy is arnab ray he does have a google account and he just authorized you looking at his facebook pictures so they sign it and they send it so this is this 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 whole but 
from this is technology but from a user perspective you should always remember that your when you lose your facebook account or your google account it's not just facebook and google you're losing access to yeah, absolutely uh, one set of people uh, who i think apart from uh, business folks and everyone all of us who badly need a course on uh, you know all of this is probably the media because if you read the coverage of both these incidents we get conflicting reports or either uh, some of them going to really doomsday scenarios and basically clueless reporting uh, is it any better in the us again it's, it's again it's always true that most no, in the us for instance there are you know there are wired and you know cnet and they have very good people so they are you, tech journalists they are tech journalists i mean that is the, they have full time security beat people like they understand right but if it's but if you try to read about technology on new york times for instance at least i've seen that the that at least for computer science and for hacking kind of things uh, the coverage is not that great and it might be for biology but i don't think that they have very good they have people who have the specialization to understand you know can kind of separate the wheat from the chaff so in any case if you're really interested and you're serious about security you should not be getting your security news from new york times or washington <laughs> you should you should Absolutely. be going you should be going to technology sites uh, which actually have people who who know what they're talking about well, one, one but, but i think that in india there isn't any i don't think there is any wired equivalent i don't think we need no. one i think we can go to wired even in india again we exactly, go exactly there's no there's exactly. no need to indianize everything in india absolutely see when are you mentioned that you know you work on cyber security for medical devices i keep thinking what kind of devices are these i mean are there uh, inab- internet enabled pacemakers that someone can hack into no they're I not internet enabled pacemakers but any device nowadays has a bluetooth connection to something and a bluetooth connection can be connected to the internet a bluetooth is is fairly you know it's not a line of sight protocol so i can be in the next room and i can connect to your bluetooth right so it pretty much everything nowadays uh, pretty much every medical device is connected and uh, they have they produce data and they stream data uh, to a cloud that's pretty much the model for everything and most see in in the medical device industry in general uh, people have realized that the technology the technology of therapy isn't really where uh, the next generation is the next generation is in using the data that comes out of treatment to create more effective and innovative treatments it's also something called personalized medicine so right nowadays you know everybody is given the exact same advice oh your blood sugar should be from this to this it's for everybody in the whole goddamn world and it's just not the way the human body operates so everybody has different tolerances and so this the whole purpose of the next generation of medicine is to find out what is it that works for you so that's why they're talking about you know these smart devices fitbit sleep monitors you know multiple kinds of physiological measures that are obtained from you and correlated with your behaviors like when do you run fast you know how much oxygen are you you know what's your rate at which you know there's there's blood there's oxygen in your blood you know how does your heart rate change when you sit up from uh, from a chair up suddenly you know and it it varies for everybody and 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 the therapies and the medication can all be changed and formulated based on your particular sensitivity and your reaction to it 
So now, you know, a generation ago, there was no way of getting at this data. Your doctor couldn't, and unless you were Jahapana and the doctor was always trailing you, you couldn't see the patient, right? Your patient would come in after three months or after six months, right. if, even at all, if he did. And then you would ask him, what was your blood and take an instant measurement. But that instant measurement after six months means nothing, right? It means nothing at all. So now you have everything is about continuous monitoring and about continuous application of therapy. Um, we have um, we have artificial pancreas for uh, type one diabetics, which is essentially mimicking in software the behavior of your pancreas. So it, it understands the amount of insulin that needs to be put in uh, based on algorithms. So you can understand the amount of criticality of these of these devices, and you know why somebody would want to hack into it. So that, that's really where, that's why medical device cybersecurity is such a huge thing in the U.S. today, right now. Because it's not just medical devices, it's healthcare, hospital. The, right. uh, you know, in 2016, there was this massive WannaCry malware infestation in different healthcare, uh, in different hospitals, where, as you said, ransomware people. So when you are, when you are a cancer patient and you're going through chemotherapy, the kind of data that you have of your previous chemotherapies, that's essential for the next chemotherapy. So if somebody essentially holds that data to ransom, they're basically holding the life of the patient to ransom. Um, I have been to conferences where they said that, you know, some of the attacks that have happened is um, attackers and criminals, they have gotten into the, uh, to the basically the case diaries that psychiatrists and mental health care professionals have about children in schools. Yikes. And they have gone to the children and blackmailed them, asking them to pay money or they will go and, you know, they actually created even interfaces online where you could see, you could go to that website and essentially it would be pixelated out your stuff, but you could see it's you with all the information they have on you. And then if you paid them, then that thing would just vanish. So they provide, you know, they have these sophisticated interfaces. So, th so this is, this is a whole, there's this whole cyber criminal enterprise. And uh, there is a, there's a, there are a few YouTube channels that I watch about this kind of scam artist. So many times you get, at least we in the U S we get these calls from India, essentially people with fake accents, terrible fake accents. Uh, saying that I'm calling for Microsoft and my name is James and I, and uh, he will basically, if you're gullible enough, he will, he will say there's something wrong with your computer and you will go and click a link, which will give him remote access to your computer. And then basically he will install malware and you'll ask for payment to take it out. So this is a, this is a scam, which has been running in, you know, primarily out of India. Uh, for years now, and uh, this they basically preys on. So they they're very very fun videos. I encourage people to watch them. So these videos are basically made by people pretending to be getting scammed. So there are these guys who are like, who actually go and you know they right. solicit these people to call them. Then these guys who are really very very good hackers, basically while those guys are dialing in. Those guys use that to break into their computers and then they turn on their webcams and look at you know where they're sitting. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> While they're pretending to be scammed, they actually show on the side this guy 
and they're obviously talking in Telugu or talking in Bengali. So you can like, as an Indian, it's, it provides you another, another look. Right. <laughs> There's things which you don't really can see it. So, so it's it's really fun, but you can you can kind of see that there is this all these criminal enterprises that that are running based on people's lack of cybersecurity and p- people's panic, right? This guy calls in and just says your account, your your webs. You know, I think the English is terrible, but you know they will say, uh, "Sir, your website is uh, causing a lot of malware is coming and going." And this this guy will immediately and this guy is apparently Sam from Texas uh, with this accent, and then this guy will give him access to his computer and bus. That's it. They they actually have scripts which they read, and these guys who are these scam busters, they then go into their right. machines and bring out the scripts to show people this is the script that they follow. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's this this is freaking business going on here, and again, which comes back to the way I started. The main thing is education. The main thing, even with people, and 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 it it's, we most of us we work at some place, right? So so ultimately, I believe that the place of of disseminating cyber security knowledge ultimately has to be something which your company or place of work has to do. And for that to happen, your senior executive management has to understand what cybersecurity is. And so for me, again, I'll come back to the way I started. The primary challenge today in cybersecurity is not so much the technology, but it's it's in the decision makers. It's in the people, it's in the emperors and the kings and the queens who run the businesses of today. You know, I guess it's not a problem with Microsoft. You know, it's not a problem with Google or anybody else. I mean, they understand. But, you know, does a government, you know, does, do the guys who run Aadhaar understand it? I mean, they have some very important information of you. Does the, does, there's a department of motor vehicles. Do they understand? Um, does that retail shop that you're buying, you know, your trousers from during pujas, do they understand it? So you're not dealing per se with the tech companies of the world. I mean, Facebook, when they sell your data, they know who they're selling it to and why they're selling it to. It's not that they're stupid, but there are people here who just don't know any better. And those are the people you should really be afraid uh, of. I don't don't know if if you notice this. Uh, Pretty much in every uh, place where you go and buy something, the first thing they do during billing is ask you for your phone number. And everyone has absolutely no problem in just giving them their phone number. And any paperwork, people just ask you for a copy, a photocopy of your Aadhaar. And there are photocopies of people's Aadhaars just floating around. I can just type people's name and Aadhaar and you'll get Google images of it. So this is exactly. So this is the kind of cultural change that needs to be there. So this is not a technology. There's no technological solution for this. This isn't encryption, as that guy said. Go and (laughs) exactly. This is not encryption. This is a cultural change as to the data you ask. I mean, I I remember when I first came to the US, and there was again this was this was um, around like the early 2000s. I went to a doctor's office. And they said, can I have your social security number? And I said, what if I don't give you my social security number to write there? And then when I said, they said, you can give your driver's license. number." So I said, I'll give you my driver's license. number." But the thing is that I had to ask that, you know, it because I, I knew and I, and I do not. Nowadays, actually, there is a lot more protections around your social security number. I see that at least many companies, they don't use your social security number. The, the, the secrecy, that the, the fact that your social security, security number is secret, I think everybody now understands that it's not true. But in the, you know, in 2000s, that was not the case. Your social security number was treated as your password. And that created a lot of problem because the password was like pretty much everybody knew what the password was. 
I think one of the big big things was there was this company. I think it was LiveLock or something where the where the where the guy was so confident he gave his social security number out in their advertisement, saying there's nothing they can yes. do because our. And that guy got like majorly screwed by multiple. Oh, I, you were not. This happened in India, right? Uh, somebody in the Aadhaar department uh, tweeted out his Aadhaar card and said, "Okay, jo karna karlo." And people immediately in that same email, in that same Twitter thread, they started posting very personal information about him. And uh, obviously, he solicited it. He said, "Okay, this is my Aadhaar card. Aadhaar is secure. Let's see what you guys can do." and right from his family details his address his bsnl phone number everything came out in that same twitter thread so okay <laughs> that's uh, the podcast for today i guess a very educational one and uh, it reminds us that arnab is isn't just about 90s bollywood and black lentil references you get a lot more for for your money and uh, i do hope that the five rules arnab mentioned today help everyone what i'm going to do is i'm going to put them directly in the show description for the episode so it's it's going to be there there right in the pod, on your podcast player so i would urge all of you to live by all of them and uh, educate others too i think this is very important so uh, until next time take care bye bye